Your leadership is a lonely place, particularly when you've got such a high-caliber team of people around you because you, you've got to kind of live up to the standards they all set for themselves. can't get away with being a fool in that situation. You've got to earn respect. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Tim Jarvis. Tim is a polar traveller, historian and environmental scientist. He's clearly a polymath and this episode really travels around the subjects. From his work dealing directly with governments and policymakers as a climate change specialist, through to his expeditions tracing the journeys of Shackleton and Mawson using the same kit and clothing as them, this is a podcast that could have been three hours. We dip into Tim's views on the world and his motivations and the idea of being a pragmatic optimist. Tim excels in the art of pithy, one-line pearls of wisdom, and I took a huge amount from this episode. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Tim Jarvis. So um, thanks very much for sitting down and doing this. I know it's late where you are, but um, it would be great, please, if you could begin by introducing yourself. Tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Well, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm speaking to you from, from South Australia. I'm, I'm from UK originally, but live here because the weather's nicer. Um, uh, my name is Tim Jarvis. I'm an environmental scientist and I lead expeditions to remote places, and I use those lessons from those expeditions to really get environmental outcomes, I guess. And so everything has come full circle. And then what came first for you, expeditions and love of that world or environmental sciences? I think the, I think the love of the outdoors came first. I grew up in Malaysia as a, as a kid and, uh, you know, obviously pre-internet, giving away age and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, Malaysia was a really exciting place back then. You know, there were troops of wild dogs and plenty of encounters with snakes and monkeys. And my parents would say, off you go and, you know, see you later and watch out. And uh, it was an adventurous place in which to uh, explore literally, but also explore your own personal limits and who you were. And if you do it enough, that is, of course, who you become. And so I think I think the adventure came first, but uh, you know the love of the love of nature came hand in hand with it. I think. And so, what then motivated you to push down the environmental sciences route rather than working in logistics or you know flag planting expeditions, as as it were? I think um, I think the thing that motivated me really to to get involved in the environmental field was the fact that you know 
in all my travels, and of course, the remote, the more remote you get, um, you know, the more your sense of indignation and your sense of outrage grows as you see the human footprint, even in those remotest of places. And so you, I suppose, I suppose I just developed a, 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 you know, an increasing sense of urgency around the need to use the expedition stuff to, to promote sustainability messaging, because I just saw humanity's footprint everywhere and, and saw how under pressure nature was and now, whether I wanted to or not, I, I feel duty bound to use the sort of experiences I've had to to tell the tell the stories, but also come up with outcomes and solutions to to some of the problems. Yeah, and again, I think it's just interesting the kind of what came first around. You know, you're kind of a rare creature. I would guess I would say, unless I'm wrong, in that you have the environmental science background, but you're also an expert communicator. And I think people tend to be one or the other. Um, and I'd say increasingly we need a combination of the two. Um, how did yeah, you? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying yes to agree that I'm an expert communicator by any means. But I mean, I think, um, I think I do communicate reasonably clearly, and I, I do have a science background. But I also climb and, and spend a lot of time in remote places, and so I suppose it does give you that extra, extra. Um, you know, you get extra probably time afforded to your opinion, should we say, if if you're someone who isn't just commenting anecdotally on the stuff you see, oh, there's a glacier that's retreating, it must be us. If if you've got that science background, you can speak with a little bit more a little bit more authority. So I think the combination of things is really good because, you know, the adventure stuff often gives you access to audiences that the environmental background wouldn't necessarily give you access to, but the environmental background gives you the credibility that you wouldn't otherwise have if you were just someone who I say just someone who spend time in the outdoors. There are plenty of good people reporting back on what they see, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other element, having done my homework on all of this, is the kind of historical element to your expeditions, adventures, etc. Where does that come from and what is the motivator? Well, I mean, the, the, the historical trips, I suppose I'd done enough trips in the modern way that it had piqued my interest thinking, you know, how would one do this if one didn't have the technology at one's disposable, you, you know, GPS, Gore-Tex jackets, uh, you know, lots of the modern stuff. How would I stack up if I really did try and pit myself against the explorers of old, I suppose? And uh, I used to listen to that all the time. You know, you do talks and people come along and go, oh, you know, Nothing like it was for them back in the old days. And, and of course, it gradually creeps in and you think, well, there's a challenge. Let's, let, let's see. Um, and, and I think uh, I live in Adelaide here in South Australia where I advise government on environmental issues and that sort of stuff. But it's home to a, a guy called Douglas Mawson, who is a contemporary of, of Shackleton. In fact, he was on Shackleton's uh, 1907 Nimrod expedition. Uh, but he was also, um, you know, also knew Scott. And so Mawson was from here. I'm roughly the sort of same physique as Mawson. And, and people had said, well, look, why don't you attempt his journey to, to, to sort of disprove the fact that he may have needed to cannibalize one of the men who died in his arms on an expedition where, in fact, Mawson was the sole survivor. So that's sort of where it came from. Um, before I knew it, I was on that journey. And how did that play out? 
Well, I travelled with an increasingly nervous Russian um, who, um, who uh, you know, had I not been able to do it on the food that Mawson said he had without the need to eat the other guy, it could have been bad news for him. But I can report that he now works as a uh, aeronautical engineer in Sydney for Qantas. So, hey, look, you're still alive. Um, I haven't had to taste human flesh. That's good. So we're all happy. Um, <laughs> and I think this is, you know, obviously we've, we're into episode 140 or whatever it is now on this podcast. And I think I've spoken to lots of people who travel to the polls, but nobody who's been there in the kit of old, you know, from the golden age in big inverted commas, how different was it? What was the experience like? What did you learn? Well, I mean, I think, um, I, I think it's, it's not as good. One could say that for, for, for starters. So you've got that kind of physical disadvantage of using the old kit. I mean, it chafes, it doesn't breathe as readily. It, it's heavier. Um, flip side is I think some of the animal pelts and things like that with the gloves and the sleeping bags, reindeer skin sleeping bags and beaver pelt gloves. I mean, they, because evolution has, has, has armed those animals with that incredible pelt, uh, you know, like for example, the, you know, the, 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 the hairs in, in, in those pelts are, are hollow. So the heat from the animal can kind of stop the ice forming on the, on the fur and it sort of, you know, drops, drops away. Um, you know, so I think, I think the human built stuff, the, you know, the, the gabardine and that sort of thing doesn't function anywhere near as well. But the, the, the animal pelts and things like that actually function pretty well, albeit the fact they're a lot heavier. The other thing I'd say is that you, when you wear the stuff, you wear it almost like a uniform and with it comes a sense of responsibility to actually live up to it. It's a funny thing. When I did the trip with 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 you know John the Russian, the, the, the Mawson trip, where it was just me and him, and then and then me on my own. Um, you know, you look at him and he's got a beard and he's wearing the gear and you and he looks at you and sees the same and you and you feel that you really are like those sepia hued images that you see and you've got to live up to it. And so you derive a certain amount of strength from that. It's interesting. Yeah, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth or assume anything, but to what extent I think it's silly to ask, you know, do you wish you'd been born then so you could have been part of those teams? But do we overly romanticise that period in time or is that romantic view justified? Oh, look, I think it's a difficult one to answer. I think on the one hand, it, you know, look, I, it all goes back to why we adventure and why we do these things. And I mean, I personally think there's an element of, of, of doing it for, you know, there's a certain amount of ego in there. There's a certain amount of, you know, inquisitiveness to, you know, actually genuinely want to discover something new, you know, source of a river or, you know, dare I say it, there were people who travelled with a view to, you know, changing the hearts and minds of, you know, the communities of people they met, you know, a lot of a lot of religious-driven uh, endeavour, um, particularly in places like Africa and South America. But there's always been an element of you discovering more about yourself. And, you know, I've often said, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the thousandth person to summit Mount Everest, if it's you that's up there, then it's significant to you. It doesn't matter that 999 people have been there before you. Uh, so I think there's always been that element of self-discovery. That's why I think it'll continue to be relevant, even if we've discovered sort of everything 
in inverted commas. Although, of course, we haven't because, the, you know, the world's oceans aren't well known. Most of the world's mountains aren't climbed, you know, and then there's space. And then there's the number of animals we share the planet with. And, and you know, there are so many things that we don't, we just don't understand the connectedness of nature. Uh, there is plenty left to explore. Um, you just have to be a little bit more creative about how you go about it. You know, there aren't countries or tribes to meet necessarily. But so, yeah, you know, in some ways I, it would have been nice. Um, but on the other hand, I think we live in a very exciting time where we, we, we're made privy to things that, that, you know, David Livingston wouldn't have been, wouldn't have known about. Um, you know, some incredible frontier-based stuff going on. So I think it's an exciting time to be alive. Uh, so I'm, I guess no regrets. I'm really interested in your view on that because I'm thrilled you know, as an environmental scientist who, you know, advises government on these problems, for you to say it's an exciting time to be alive rather than a terrifying, I'm fairly confident it's that too. But why do you think it's an exciting time to be alive? Well, you know, I think, uh, you, you know, solutions are starting to reveal themselves to us that we just weren't aware of before. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, it is depending on which side of the bed you get out of, some days you feel very optimistic because you think, frankly, a lot of the solutions to the problems we're currently facing are actually already known. We don't have to go and invent a widget or a, a clever new carbon sequestering technology necessarily. I mean, we've got a lot of the answers we already need. We just need to use them at scale, get on with it, get politics out of the way and, and work together to achieve the outcomes at scale. So I think that sort of stuff excites me, the amount of low-hanging fruit that's out there that we could really realise quite easily if we just put differences aside and got on with the job of, of solving it, almost using an expedition mindset. Um, the flip side, of course, is that we are living in a world now where many, you know, we live in a very short-term world. You know, we're driven by the social media cycle almost rather than, you know, rather than having that capacity to think longer term uh, bilaterally to get things done. Um, so I think the issues we're faced with require a long-term consistency of approach, and yet society dictates the fact that everything's very short-term. So we've got this kind of uh, tension between those two, those two things. But I think, look, for, for, for those of us who can kind of step up to the plate and make, make the change at scale happen, it's an exciting time. There's an area of opportunity. We can all be heroes in this space if we just, if we just, you know, step up. That is an amazing sentence. <laughs> in fact, I've written it down. I think because it, it, you know, again, I speak to lots of people about this on microphone and off microphone, and I you know, talk to my wife about it, talk to my friends about it, as well as people who are working in the space. And I think I don't know that everybody feels like that. I think not to go on a self-indulgent ramble, but the thing that scares me most is apathy, whether it's conscious apathy or unconscious apathy and unconscious ignorance. And I think it's such an overwhelming problem that we face that people feel like they have to bury their heads in the sand, they can't cope. But I think you've nailed it. Like we can all be heroes, whether that's at the micro or macro level. And it's about 
again, I love that expedition mentality idea of like, come on, we're going on a journey. It's going to give you purpose. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be awesome. You know, it's going to test us. Yeah, you know, Shackleton, I'm sure, didn't quite use this language when his ship sank, and of course, the reality of crossing Antarctica suddenly became suddenly went out the window, which was the goal of that expedition, of course, the endurance expedition. Suddenly, the new goal became saving themselves, and uh, he didn't use these exact words. But my take on it was that he gathered everyone around and said, "Look, you know, bad news is the you know the mission is off, or at least it's changed." good news is the vision is very much intact. The vision was to do something heroic at the limits of human endurance. We're still going to, you know, experience that. It's just that the mission will have changed. It will be saving ourselves rather than crossing Antarctica. We'll still return as heroes, you know, whether we meant it or not, I don't know. But And so I think, uh, you know, we can, we can appeal to people in that way and say, you know, you, fossil fuel energy company, you know, your vision is to supply energy to and enable people to live their lives to the full. You know, that doesn't have to change. It's just the way you generate the power needs to change. The mission needs to needs to adjust. So I think there's a lot of sort of expedition experiences that, that speak to this journey where we're on when it comes to the sustainability piece. Yeah. God, I mean, if this was the environmental podcast, I think, you know, I'd love to go into detail on this with you. Maybe we should anyway, because, you know, we don't have a master, we can do what we want. But I think before we do go into that, I was going to ask you about justifying adventure, given the challenge ahead of us. And I suspect, I know your answer, given everything you've just said, but, you know, if these people to experience these places, would it change their minds and change their attitudes? How do you justify your travels how do we justify our travels um given you know the, the impact of them globally well i mean i think you've got to ask yourself the question whether going to these places gives you an angle that that enables you to then speak to audiences who wouldn't otherwise listen and i think i can honestly say it does i mean i if i hadn't done shackleton's expedition i doubt people would want to hear my environmental views um and i, I kind of rest my case with that with that knowledge of that, really, certainly in the corporate sector, certainly with politicians, you know, they like to be associated with someone who they know has got, you know, a different different perspective, maybe understands the complexities of some of the issues. They may not be the same issues, but if you've pulled together a really multidimensional thing like the Shackleton journey, you know, rebuilding his boat, learning to traditionally navigate, assembling a team, training over many years, wearing the old clothes, having to make the old clothes. Um, <clears throat> they know that, you know, you're familiar with, you know, making a big, gnarly, multidimensional thing real and what it takes to do that, adapting on the run and, you know, assessing risk and, and that sort of thing. Um, and they're prepared to give you the time of day and hear what you have to say about other complex issues of course climate change is infinitely more complex than retracing Shackleton's journey but nevertheless it does give you that sort of opportunity so look I think if you can honestly say you know traveling with purpose um, which is what I sort of call it I suppose loosely gives you that opportunity then you can you can justify it. and let's face it you know one person going it's easy to sort of contradict yourself in this, but, but you know, me going to Antarctica and coming back and, and using the images and the messages to promote far greater change, you know, rather dwarfs the footprint of you going. Having said that, if everyone had that mentality, then of course it wouldn't. 
But I like to think I use the opportunity the adventure affords me in the films and the books to, you know, to good effect. I don't just go there on a jolly. Um, um, you know, having said that, do I need to keep going to Antarctica to talk about climate change? Uh, um, I don't know. I'm in a little period of hiatus at the moment thinking maybe it's not justified. I've kind of gathered enough intel and enough stories and enough images that I don't really need it for the storytelling bit uh, anymore. But I do love the place. So <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, it's the, the addiction is the wrong language to use, but there is that drug-like draw to far-flung travel that I personally really struggle with. I think I could probably stop traveling and still have an interesting career, but I've just signed to go to Alaska for a month in August and I'm going to go. Yeah. And look, I mean, you know, I think it was, I used to do a lot of rowing for physical training and enjoyment and everything else. But um, we used to have something up at the rowing club. It said, it was a quote of Aristotle's. It said, you are what you repeatedly do. And, you know, we used to sort of, you know, use that, uh, probably misuse that quote for, for spending, you know, 10 sessions a week on the ergo, you know, trying to, trying to get fit. But look, I think if you spend enough time in these remote environments and you you become you become this person who, that emerges in response to those circumstances and, and when you're back in everyday life, you know, standing in the checkout at the supermarket, maybe you don't experience that person and you there's a sense of loss, you know, and you want to be that person again and it is difficult to to step away. You know, it's not you. It's not the you that you, you... You like being in the company of. It's like meeting an old friend again when you go back down there. I find it's just this more resourceful version of you emerges. Yeah. I mean... It's coming <laughs> back, doesn't it? It's the literal journey and also the personal one. That's the thing. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to put it um you know and at risk of indulging in like armchair philosophy i think you know are we are we uh, you say you're going back and you're it's like rediscovering a new person or meeting meeting that old person are we not that same person i think something i've personally really tried to do in my 30s which i failed to do in my 20s is to like remain that person when i came home you know stay keep the lessons keep the learning keep the attitude that's not easy. It's not easy. Look, I mean, I don't have any 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 denominationally sort of religious background or anything else, but I, I respect people of all you know persuasions. And um, you know, it's like somebody who who you know they go to church regularly, not necessarily because they sort of you know necessarily enjoy it. They might well enjoy it, but I think they do it because they. They need the constant sort of reinforcement because, you know, we are human, we are fallible and, um, you know, we're prone to erring and that kind of stuff. And I think you go just to get a constant sort of topping up of your, of your, of your belief system and your, and your, you know, conviction. And, uh, you know, we kind of need the same. It takes a very strong person to, to, you know, step away and come back to kind of, again, inverted commas, everyday life and 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 just retain that sense of self. In, inevitably, it sort of, it, it recedes into the distance a little bit um, and then you have to rekindle it with a month-long trip to Alaska, you know, 
which I was going. And, you know, it just, uh, it's, it's the human condition, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not easy to, to retain it. No. And I think, you know, you've been really honest about it. And I think other people haven't been quite as honest in the past about that, the need for self, you know, it's, it's not just about making money because we have bills to pay or kids to feed or whatever it might be. It is, there is an element of, I just want to go. And I sort of can't stop myself. And is that okay? Look, I think, I think it's who you are. I mean, again, it's difficult to talk about this stuff without sounding coming out with cliches, but I mean, I'd never really seen uh, the distinction between, you know, work and leisure time as far as i'm concerned it's just life you know and um i try and be consistent and true to myself by just living it you know in a consistent way you know i mean i just can't i you know and and there are downsides to that too because of course you take knockbacks in the workplace kind of you know very personally because as far as you're concerned it's really sort of who you are it's this is a something you do out of a real kind of conviction it's not to necessarily pay the bills you have to work hard to make what you love pay the bills but you 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 nevertheless you don't really see that distinction or at least i don't um maybe it's easy to say who someone is you know well educated and and born in a you know developed country and you know you can you can argue that backs and forwards but the reality is you are who you are and you know for someone like me it's not been easy to to distinguish I've never really tried I've just always felt it was one kind of consistent approach to life how much of that was by design and how much of that was just a happy accident did you have a plan look I think I'd be lying if I said I really had a plan I think I had a I had a real um, image in my mind of what life would look like and the way it would pan out. I did a geography degree. It didn't really, I I love geography, but it didn't really get me a job. I did other things, but I kept feeling there was something missing and that I needed to sort of go back to my true calling and it's interesting I did a sales job for a short period of time and you know I remember telling my dad you know I was in my early 20s and he said I said I can't believe I'm doing a sales job but I mean you know with with respect to sales jobs um but he said you know what you know I bet you'll find some of the things you've done there useful and in fact I have because I think you know how you sell things is is you know, relies on you understanding who other people are and seeing things from their perspective. It's actually helped me sell environmentalism. It's helped me run teams better because you can sort of put yourself in the other person's shoes and understand where they're coming from. I think Shackleton, by the way, had that in spades. You know, he had that emotional intelligence. So nothing in life was sort of wasted. And I kind of felt that it was all sort of heading in a direction. But it's just about, you know, how you package up all the life experiences you've had and and get them to serve a, a you know a greater vision you have for yourself but no I think it just sort of gradually coalesced I'd be lying if I said you know one day I woke up and I was living this perfect life I just feel feel as though I've just sort of kept 
saying yes to the slightly riskier, slightly less trodden path, and this is where I've ended up, you know. Tried to resist the temptation to, uh, you know, do things too conventionally. Are you satisfied and fulfilled by what you've done and what you do? Never, because it's just my personality. But, I mean, I... um, you know, it is a very, very real phenomenon that you've got to accept. If you do something, you know, that is significant, you can't spend your whole time. Most of us are our own worst critics. So most of us, you know, feel that if we've achieved something significant, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I feel that if I've achieved something significant, there's two ways to look at it. Either you can give yourself a pat on the back and say, well, I've done something significant and that should make me feel good about myself, or it demeans the experience because you've been able to achieve it. I think Groucho Marx said, you know, who wants to be a member of a club that lets me in as a member, you know? Um, and so you've got to come to terms with it. And it does teach you, you know, it teaches you humility, teaches you more about who you are. Um, but it's a very real process you have to go through. You've got to, you've got to really try and come to terms with it. Yeah. Don't know if I answered your question or not. No, it's good. I feel like you know, we're drifting into sort of like accidental therapy or, as I say, yeah. on philosophy, but it's fascinating. I think, you know, there's stuff I'd like to come back to towards the end of this, but I'm personally very interested in the Shackleton stuff and I can sense the British self-deprecation that will follow this question, but um, I read online that you are a Shackleton expert. Would you say that's fair? Um, well, I never like calling myself an expert particularly, but I mean, I suppose over the years I have learned a lot about him. I feel as I've got into his, into his head, um, his granddaughter did ask me to assemble a team to retrace the, the journey of the James Caird after the loss of his ship, the Endurance, and I did do that trip. Um, and I, and I like to think that the, you, you know, what I've learned along the way and what I've learned about him along the way, I've packaged up into a narrative that that works for me it's all around you know how to use his lessons to 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 sort of affect a greater good particularly in the environment field yeah that's pretentious doesn't it yeah no it doesn't no that's what i'm interested in i think because you're like i say there's a rarity to your skill set and interest that i'm fascinated by i think usually people who are and I might be totally wrong here. It might just be my experience, but usually environmentalists are very focused on the here and now and the future, what's coming, biodiversity, places, etc. But you're also fascinated by individuals from recent-ish history in the adventure space. And I'm interested in the crossover, but why Shackleton? Where's the fascination with him come from and why him particularly? Well, I mean, I think Shackleton's a personality that I, uh, the more I read, the more I liked. And I don't think I'm unique in that. I mean, I think, uh, and again, it's easy to come out with cliches. You know, Scott was very, you know, rigid and relied on Royal Navy rank to to retain leadership. Uh, Mawson, the Australian explorer, was a scientist, and he too was very sort of militaristic in his style, whereas Shackleton had that wonderful kind of warmth and emotional intelligence and understood what made people tick and 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 could could find common ground with everybody 
Um, and, uh, and, and of course, Amundsen too probably fell into the, into the Scott and Mawson mold of being a bit rigid and ruled with a iron fist and that kind of thing. Um, so I think, you know, Shackleton is one of those people that appeals to you. And look, I mean, ultimately he wasn't successful in any of his, his expedition goals, but he turned around 97 miles from the pole on his bid to reach the South Pole. And of course, endurance, they never set foot on the continent. It was all about saving themselves. Um, a previous trip, he'd been south with Scott in, on the Discovery Expedition in 1902 and, of course, had been invalided home. And his final expedition quest, he died the night he arrived back in South Georgia, which was the scene of his greatest victory. So he can't be regarded as being the most successful, but he certainly brought everybody home and and had this unique ability to turn any adversity into a kind of a an opportunity, you know, which I think is a really powerful, a powerful kind of ability that he had. And I think much of what he stood for teaches us about the way we need to approach the next, you know, 50 years on the planet in terms of, in terms of the environment, you know, the way we need to approach this adversity that we're faced with, you know, find things that, find language to speak to all the stakeholders whose behaviour we need to change rather than preaching at them with guilt and fear-based messaging. We need to be a bit more, a bit cleverer with the way we sell environmentalism, um, keep everybody on board for the journey, be adaptable. Yeah. You know, there are so many lessons. So, look, I mean, you know, and look, Shackleton's granddaughter, the Honourable Alexandra Shackleton, asked me to do the trip. I mean, um, I'd suffered retracing Mawson's trip, wearing the old stuff and starving and that sort of thing. And she said, well, have I got a challenge for you? And so I was very honoured. So whole range of reasons why I did it. Which were? Well, you know, the legend that is Shackleton, the the extraordinary nature of that expedition that Sir Edmund Hillary described as the greatest survival journey of all time, the fact that I was honoured to be asked by her to do it, and the fact that I was still on that own my own personal journey of just trying to see how I stacked up against those explorers of old as part of just an extension of the whole why you do expeditions narrative, I suppose. Whole range of reasons I felt I needed to needed to do it. And at, at risk of sounding at, at risk of asking a rubbish question, but it's the one I want to ask. I, I'm kind of tempted to just say, please can we do story time? You know, please could you just tell me what happened on that expedition? And for those who don't know, you know, what was the expedition? What was its intention? What happened? And then what did you do? How was it? Well, I mean, the original of Shackleton's, of course, his plan had been to cross Antarctica on foot one side to the other, and, and that all went wrong with the loss of his expedition ship, the Endurance. This was on the eve of the First World War, but they left. Uh, it was 1914 when they left the UK, but 1916, by the time the ship had been crushed in the ice, the men had lived on in the stricken ship for 10 months and on the pack ice for a further five months. And, you know, finally they battled their way uh, to a place called Elephant Island, off the coast of Antarctica, and there they, you know, they celebrated having saved themselves from the wreckage of the ship, 
And then Shackleton knew that no one would find them there. And the only thing for it was to undertake this journey across the Southern Ocean to the nearest uh, inhabited place, a place called South Georgia, uh, another island in the South Atlantic, storm-tossed, wild, you know, beautiful, but, you know, dangerous and difficult to get to. And against all the odds, they made this incredible, you know, 800 nautical mile journey across the Southern Ocean, essentially in a rowing boat with a toy sail on. And uh, they arrived at the island after two storms and a hurricane, wearing their cotton smocks and woolens and leather boots, and then arrived on the southern side of the island. The whaling stations they were trying to reach where the people were to raise the alarm to rescue the men left in Antarctica, of course, were on the other side of the island, and in between was a mountain range that had never been climbed. And off they went through the mountains with nails pulled out of their packing cases, pushed back through the soles of their boots for grip. And, of course, they made the first ever crossing of the mountains, ultimately rescued everybody. It was incredible as a, as a journey. And we, to the extent we could, tried to do that 100 years on. We um, rebuilt the boat, learned to traditionally navigate, with no cheating, no Mars bars or GPS or EPIRBs or guidelines or that kind of stuff. We ate lard and used a sextant and remade the same cotton smocks and woolens and leather boots, froze our asses off on the boat and almost capsized on multiple occasions in the two storms ourselves. Saw the sun twice and two weeks later arrived at South Georgia where we too had three guys who were unable to continue and we ultimately crossed the mountains in the old gear with just, just three of us on what was a pretty torturous pretty torturous undertaking and got to the same whaling station as Shackleton and of course didn't do it in anything like the time that he managed through the mountains and still marveled at how he'd been able to achieve what he did so we did what we set out to do without in any way eclipsing of course what he'd he'd achieved but it was a hell of an adventure and whilst you were on your journey your version of it did it at all times again it's a silly question but I'm sure you'll get what I mean did it at all times feel possible or were you just expecting to see how far you could get? I think, uh, look, I think with expeditions, you always work back, you know, from the end point. Certainly with the planning, you put everything in place you think, you hope will get the job done. It'll give you a good chance of doing it. You get the right people, the right training, the right understanding of risk, right skills. Um, and you, you know, it's all designed to kind of get you there. You don't just start, you know, paddling in the direction of South Georgia from Elephant Island and hope you're going to make it. <clears throat> and I do, again, think there's parallels there with the climate piece. I mean, I think if everybody just goes around making incremental, continuous improvement-based change, if you're a company, it ain't going to get the job done. It'd be like me rowing roughly in the direction of South Georgia, hoping I'm going to make it. I always work back from what I want to achieve with with what I believe will get the job done. So I suppose the answer is yes, you put in place what you think will do it. But, you know, at any time, the roughness of the sea, someone falling overboard, rogue wave can stop you and almost did. Um, but you, you retain an almost kind of... Uh, childlike belief that it can be done but therein lies the 
beauty of self-delusion and that's the key key trait of all expeditions really is just that belief you can make it against all the all the evidence to suggest otherwise you know do you consider yourself an optimist yes i think i am but i'm i'm uh i'm very uh you know pragmatic you know i don't i'm not a blind optimist i'm a pragmatic optimist so i go in there thinking okay if we're going to give this a good crack and, you know, we had Princess Anne watching. We had Alexandra Shackleton, his granddaughter, who asked me to do it, watching. We had a lot of people who who are fascinated in the whole story, so we had to do it properly. And, um, you know, you don't want to make a mess of it. Um, a lot of pressure to get it right. Yeah, I was going to ask that around you know, were you able to enjoy it or did you just, you know, there's the burden of leadership, which is obviously profound, but also the pressure. Well, firstly, the team were just exceptional, exceptional people. Um, you know, I think the key, again, a good tenet of good leadership is recruiting better than you. And I mean, you know, Baz Gray, who's RSM for Royal Marines, head of outdoor survival, hard ass good guy, does have a good sense of humour, even though I pretend he doesn't. He's actually got a very good sense of humour. Seb Coulthard, Royal Navy, Nick Bubb, extremely good round-the-world sailor, skipper, Paul Larson, navigator, Ed Wardle, summited Everest three times, fantastic guy. You know, really wonderful team. Um, so, yeah, you know, burden of leadership, definitely. Uh, it, was, it was incredibly difficult. Um, incredibly difficult undertaking and leadership is a lonely place particularly when you've got such a high caliber team of people around you because you you've got to kind of live up to the standards they all set for themselves can't get away with being a fool in that situation you've got to earn respect and that sort of thing and I suppose again this is all true of you know, your, I guess, your day job of, you know, climate crisis, science and communication. Um, taking these I don't sugarcoat it. I mean, I think, um, and, and neither did Shackleton. And I think good leaders don't. I think they just say, look, this is the way it is. This is the reality we're faced with. Uh, here is the plan. And if we follow the plan, we can make it, but we really do have to follow the plan. You have to do this. I have to do that. We have to be honest with one another. We have to be diligent. We have to adapt on the run to the inevitable curveballs we get. And we just have to get this achieved. And uh, if we all do this honestly, with trust between us as a team, and, you know, we've got the biggest team of all, which is kind of humanity. You have to work together to get these big, big issues resolved. We can do it, but we've got to stop, you know, buggering around. We've got to uh, crack on. Uh, but it can be done. Yeah. I have a few questions around that. I guess that it can be done one is the big one, is, you know, through the lens of pragmatic optimism, how can it be done? Well, it depends what the issue is, of course. I mean, <clears throat> I think, um, I look, I think, I think, the, I think of the biggest the biggest level of all um, 
the fundamental problem is we just consume too much. You know, I don't even think it's how many of us that there are. I think it's our consumption patterns. There's all sorts of very interesting work that I could talk about at great length that's gone into that. So I think I think it's a bit of a fallacy that it's just people, how many of us there are. It's a very convenient thing for people in developed countries to kind of accuse predominantly the developing world of just having these burgeoning populations that are going to destroy it for everybody. If we all live like they do in South Asia in terms of their footprint, there'd be enough space for 20 billion people. But unfortunately, we all aspire to live like America and Europe and Australia. And and, and so, you know, that's 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 the big ticket item as far as I'm concerned. Look, with, with an issue like climate, there's two elements to it. One is not making the problem worse, which is all about mitigation. So it's electric cars and solar on your roof and wind turbines and things like that. In other words, you know, stopping adding more to the to the bucket. Um, but the the elephant in the room really is sequestration. It's it's how we get two hundred years worth of excess CO two out of the atmosphere as fast as possible. And of course, up to this point in time, <clears throat> it's been the ocean that's really done most of the heavy lifting. And now we need to restore landscapes at scale to do that. I think, uh, look, I think personally, you know, you know, industrial-based geosequestration of CO2 at scale is, is a bit of a folly. I think there are some situations where it's one of the tools in the armory you could maybe use, but I just think at scale it's, you know, we have just contributed just a, just a devastating amount of additional heat into the atmosphere. I, I forget the figure, but it's something like 20 million Hiroshima bombs worth of heat energy. It may even be a far bigger figure than that. It's, it's an absolutely staggering amount of additional heat that the ocean has absorbed because it's taken 90% of the CO2 we've ever put into the atmosphere into the ocean and is now 30% more acidic as a result. So, look, I think um, wide-scale changes to things like agriculture, um, storing carbon in soil. Um, these things need to happen at scale. They need to happen immediately. Um, farming based on the capability of the land, you know, based on soil and evaporation rates and rainfall. Here in Australia, we've got about a 95% discrepancy between what optimally should be being grown on a parcel of land and what we're actually doing. You know, we're trying to run it like it's Western Europe, which is a legacy of the Brits coming here and trying to run South Australia, which is the driest state in the driest inhabited continent in the world, like it's Kent or Sussex, and it's just not, you know. Um, so I think there's those two things. One is all the mitigation-based side of the of the situation, which is which is all about renewable renewable energy and EVs and things like that. And then the other piece is the sequestration at scale. Good news is we don't have to invent new technology when I mean, we already know trees are a great start. Yeah, but we're not doing a brilliant job of keeping them. <laughs> Well, even less so in this country. I mean, we have one of the highest, in fact, we have the highest rates of um, deforestation in the OECD in this country, in Australia. And we also have the highest rates of native species loss in the OECD in Australia. So um, I think a lot of your listeners might think, you know, 
Australia is clean and green and what a great place to go. And to an extent it is clean because there's not many of us and there's a lot of space, but it's come at a price, you know. Um, uh, yeah, and I think it's interesting because we, you know, we talk a lot about rewilding Britain and changing agriculture and looking at sheep farming and dry stone walls and Beatrix Potter and whether or not that's the world we want to live in. But I think, you know, each country, each continent has a different issue, a different problem and a different solution. As somebody, and I'll sort of leave it open to you how you want to answer this, whether it's kind of globally or Australia or whatever, but it's fascinating to me that you're working at policy level, you know, with government. I think that somebody said to me once, it's not about stopping flying, it's about campaigning to see flights being stopped and to seeing, you know, carbon tax and et cetera, et cetera. Complicated issues. I have issues with some of them and think others are great. But do you find hope in that work as a policy change maker or do you just bash your head against the wall dealing with government? Well, I think you need to do things at all scales, really. Um, I think for your own personal uh, you know, sanity, you need to be doing practical things on a day-to-day basis. So for a start, you have to look at your own footprint and make sure, you know, expedition, expedition rules, control what you can. So for a start, you know, clean up your own act. Um, but then, by all means, lobby your political representatives, work on, you know, projects at scale, work with the corporate sector to try and affect change. Uh, can't happen without them. I find myself working across scales, but I think they cross-fertilize one another. Sorry about the, you know, probably a bad pun, but, you know, I, I run a reforestation project of my own over here. And and a, and a lot of people in, in on the land come and have a look at the work we're doing and they think there are bits of it that they can adopt. And they don't necessarily buy into everything we do, but they cherry pick the bits they like. And, and you know, I think that's that's valuable. Uh, I did that really because that was the thing that brought me to Australia in the first place. I, I, I ran these agricultural trials with the heaviest users of irrigation water just to trying to get them to use less cotton, dairy, rice and grape growing. So I think, you know, working across different scales is good because I think if people can see all of the policy speak in the world, you know, doesn't, you know, deliver an outcome as far as a farmer's concerned. But if you start doing stuff on on the ground and, you know, use it to not only improve your land, improve productivity, sequester carbon, uh, reduce the amount of water you have to use, the amount of herbicide, pesticide you have to use, but also allow that to feed into how you speak to policymakers and say, well, look, I'm doing this on the ground and it seems to be working. And you get respect both from the people on the land but also the people at the policy level because they can see you're really applying these things. Um, do you feel like do you feel like you're winning that fight or losing it? Um, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I think um, I think the world is still heading rapidly in the wrong direction, but I say the pace at which it's heading in the wrong direction is slowing. Um, but a bit like the tipping point you get in Antarctica where, you know, we're not really sure when we'll reach a point at which, say, a, an ice shelf will fail and in so doing, you know, allow all the ice that's backed up behind it to then 
move more rapidly into the ocean and cause a sort of a sudden, you know, upsurge in 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 sea level if it's a large enough amount of ice. We're not sure exactly where those tipping points uh, lie, and so it's important to sort of keep keep working in the knowledge we could be avoiding tipping points all over the place if we can just keep keep up the work. Uh, look, it, numbers suggest we'll miss one and a half degrees Celsius of of which is the notional target set by UNFCCC, you know, the International Climate Talks. Um, and that will be catastrophic, potentially. Um, but we have to keep working. I just, uh, as you're speaking, I just keep coming back to that line, which is going to stay with me, which is the mission is off. Now it's all about saving ourselves. Um, That's right. Yeah, and we just have to have to alter it and tweak it slightly to say ourselves but also you know the world around us um because i think we just consistently fail not obviously everybody and i suspect listeners to this podcast are already well attuned with this but it's that biodiversity element as well you know it's yeah, of course we need to try and protect people but i think it's peter taylor who um is i have to be careful with my phrasing but I mean, he's an amazing author but he's definitely eccentric is probably the word but he said it's not about whether or not humans will survive it's whether or not we want to live on a planet that's inhabited by us dogs and cats um and i think that again has stayed with me yeah that's right i mean we 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 anthropomorphize everything don't you, you go to antarctica you see penguins they look like people in fact they do actually behave in a very similar fashion because you know none of them want to be the one to make the first step and then one moves and they all do and maybe we need that in the climate in the climate uh, dialogue, but uh, no, absolutely right. I mean, we, we, planet will be planet will be here. It's a question of we want whether we want to have a a role in the future or not. Um, you know, certainly at the moment, if I were an expedition leader and I'd set myself a goal of one and a half degrees, I'd be very concerned we weren't doing enough to get there if that was my metaphorical kind of getting to south georgia in the james Caird replica boat we'd be dying somewhere en route uh, rather than triumphantly arriving and crossing the mountains i still feel yeah. we've got that mountain crossing in us but we're going to have to get uh, get serious yeah well it, i mean it brings me on to my last two questions which i always ask everybody the same too at the end of every podcast and you know the first is what scares you i think living within oneself i know again it sounds very pretentious i mean plenty of situations where i've been scared thinking i'm gonna not gonna make it but i think you know living a life that's just well within your ability and not 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 stepping up and discovering what you're capable of is mediocrity I don't like. And what brings you hope? Uh, look, I think uh, human ingenuity, if we want to, we can, we can achieve. We can achieve things. It's a question of needing to want to. You look, look with COVID how quickly a vaccine was, and I'm sure others have already said this, but 
if you really want to, that process can be fast-tracked and we can we can do it. If we set ourselves on a war footing, it's just that at the moment, you know, I think the people who really need to make the decisions uh, don't feel that they're going to be embroiled in this war. They sort of feel that it's not their problem. And I think the sooner we wake up to the fact that we're all in this, we're all going to get affected. That's why COVID was so powerful in many ways, you know. It didn't matter if you were someone living in a developed country with a good education and a good job and an understanding of what good health looks like. You could still fall victim to that illness. It didn't discriminate. And that made it everybody's problem. And we need to adopt the same philosophy with climate. Or by yeah, you're, you know, don't like the word expert, but you're very knowledgeable and experienced in this field and I'm not so do correct me if I'm wrong um but I just feel like the way that society seems to work particularly Britain but I think globally as well is we're always reactive rather than you know well planned and I just think we've always got scapegoats and other reasons and you look at you know we are experiencing a massive heat wave here right now I don't think it's rained i do a lot of gardening i don't think it's rained in 20 days or something like that we had food shortages on the shelves xyz abc but it's just not quite big enough impact yet to seem like there's a climate emergency happening and i think whether it's you know covid's actually hit so now we have to react or you know we wait for someone to invade poland before we start arming up and getting involved you know we're never we're just never thinking this is going to happen let's fix it and I hate to say it, I'm sure it will be unpopular, but I do believe it. I think that it will be when disaster strikes and our way of life is threatened that we'll actually suddenly go. And that's the thing that brings me hope, um, is in a, in a sort of dark, hopeful way, is it will all go wrong and then we'll all work together really hard at speed to fix what's left. Yes, look, I I, I, I sort of, I, I guess I do agree with you. I mean, I think... Um that's what made the reaction to COVID so immediate because everybody felt that they were in this together because they felt it didn't discriminate, which is exactly, you know, exactly the way it all panned out. Look, I think in our DNA, you know, we, you know, we come from, we're a primate that hung around in small groups of individuals, only really concerned about what was happening that day to an immediate close knit group of kind of people to whom we were probably related. So it's not in our, DNA to think long term and necessarily that means you know you have to have an immediate problem right in your face to feel any sense of urgency to deal with it and I think it's incumbent upon us in the environment space if we're trying to influence policy makers to give them what it is we feel they can do whatever metrics speak to them that instill that sense of urgency and what it is they can do immediately within their remit and we've got to disaggregate this massive problem and give them the bit that they can do now rather than just present them with, you know, the world is in a bad way. How can you do this for future generations? You know, that's too amorphous a sort of concept. You've got to say, this is what you can deliver now. And these are the reasons why. And this is what should make you feel a sense of urgency around it. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, we're trying to go against human nature, you know. Um, our adaptability is our strength and our, and our weakness. We just adjust to these things. Yeah, sure. And if we want to, we can all be heroes, which is a great line. We can all be heroes. The new battlefield is 
saving the planet. I mean, what a what a what a legacy piece to be attached to if you can be part of the solution. Yeah. Ace, well, on that note, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.